It's a plague sweeping the West, endangering every soul that it touches. And I am not talking about Ebola. I'm not talking about something that strikes the body. I'm talking about a plague that, that will tear apart the soul. It's called affluenza. Affluenza. Um, read you a definition of that uh, term from the book by that same title. Affluenza is a painful, contagious, socially transmitted condition of overload, debt, anxiety, and waste resulting from the dogged pursuit of more. Affluenza. I looked this up and I stumbled on another reference to it um, on Investopedia, a site I didn't even know existed until this past week. Investopedia defines and describes affluenza this way, a social condition arising from the desire to be more wealthy, successful, or to keep up with the Joneses. Affluenza is symptomatic of a culture that holds up financial success as one of the highest achievements. People said to be affected by affluenza typically find that the very economic success they have been so vigorously chasing ends up leaving them feeling unfulfilled and wishing for yet more wealth. While affluenza cannot be quantified easily, those wishing to avoid the condition should look to be the master of, not a slave to, the things they have or wish to obtain. It's a culture of discontentment. It's deeply destructive and endangers the souls of everyone that it touches directly and indirectly. And here's the thing that we need to know. It's spreading. It's contagious. Plagues are like that. Um, and with that in mind, if something's that serious, it's a topic that from time to time in a local church, you need to approach directly, specifically, and with some regularity. That's why we're not doing lamentations today. So, if you've got a Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn not to lamentations, but rather Luke. Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, uh, verses 13 through 21. Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. Hear now God's word. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this, I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. We pray for a minute. Lord, these things that we're about to delve into, uh, 
we're going to have an allergic reaction to. Uh, they are countercultural and counterintuitive. They just go against the grain of how we think, of how our, our hearts drive us and, uh, and our very lives. And we all need to hear this, every one of us. It doesn't matter where we are, who we are. Um, we need to hear this, and we pray that you would have mercy upon us and give us ears with which to hear. And Oh, would you soften our hearts. Would you soften our hearts and help us uh, to live out these things in some consistent way. Amen. The context of this uh, incident in Jesus' life um, and his ministry, it's in the course of a, of a teaching period in the three years where he's teaching mass crowds, sort of in that middle Period. Uh, the the I guess you could say the um, what the top of his popularity you could say. And so in the midst of that, as oftentimes occurred, something interesting happened. And on one particular occasion, this interesting thing was read in verse thirteen and fourteen. Someone in the crowd said to him, "Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me." But he said to him, "Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you?" And he notice Jesus doesn't give the guy what he wants. He doesn't give him a decision. He gives him what he needs. He gives him a warning. He gives him, and I don't know if you've picked up on this first time I read it. I'm going to read it again. He, he gives to him, not just him, but to everyone else there, watching and listening, a warning. It's kind of like, I want you, an object lesson, I want you to hear what he just said, and I need to tell you something all, because you're all struggling with this, whether you know it or not. Okay, That, that sort of thing. And you read in verse 15, and he said to them, right? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possession. So it's, it's sort of like Jesus is giving this warning to this one guy, really everybody, but specifically this one guy, by telling a story about another guy. And on the surface, it looks like these two guys the real one and the fictional one, have nothing in common, right, on the surface. Because one of them says, I don't have enough. And the other one says, in essence, well, I got too much. But the reality is, they have far more in common than you may think on the surface reading because they're both in dire danger. They're, they're both suffering from affluenza. They're both suffering from covetousness and they are in in, in danger. And you can see this in, in the real guy, the guy who comes with the question in his approach to Jesus. Now, think about this. Now, if you, if you back up, I don't have time to do this, but if you back up and start at the beginning of chapter 12, and, and you read on through this point, you see the subjects that Jesus is teaching on in that particular occasion. And on this particular occasion, he's teaching on such things and, as uh, hypocrisy, and uh, on the right fear, the proportional fear of the Lord as opposed to man, uh, on, on um, the cost of discipleship. And in the midst, these are heavy topics. And Jesus is teaching on these heavy topics, and this guy sort of bursts in, interrupts the whole thing, and says, I need my money! Now what's going on there? Does, what? How could he do that? Here's what's going on. He can't hear any of what's being said has been said so far. 
His, his heart is obscured. He's blind. He's deaf to everything that Jesus is, is getting into. It's all obscured. It's, it's like that glorious sun outside being obscured by the dark clouds of his heart. All he can think about is the money. He's got no room. No room to consider anything else. And so then there comes this warning. Jesus said you need to be on your guard. You need to watch out your life, our lives. Do not consist in the abundance of our possessions. They consist in so, so much more. So much more. Now, Jesus goes on, in essence, to saying, there. Are, listen, there are two places you need to be thinking about your investments. I know you're talking about, but don't you need to um, you know, diversify your portfolio more? When actually, there's only two places. It's an either-or, not a both-end, an either-or. Or you can put it this way. Two, there's one of two ways that you can be rich. What? I thought it was... No, no, it's only... Only two, only two ways that you can try and be rich. And what Jesus says, one's going to work and one won't. So let's look at these two. The first being his warning to not be rich toward the world. Not to be rich toward the world. Now, there is a place for wealth. Let me be clear about this from the outset. It's not that Jesus is saying wealth has no place, that in and of itself it is wrong that's not what Jesus is saying in any way here. You think about this just with this guy in the story. Now is who I'm talking about. The guy in the story, there's no hint that he has defrauded anyone. There's no hint in which, in which he has stolen from anyone. He has worked for what he has. Okay? Peeling it back even further than that, who gave him his wealth? Who has made him wealthy? Well, he, he's a farmer, it would seem, relying on the fruits of the land. Who sends the sun? Who sends the rain? Who made this man wealthy? God did. So the man is being rebuked not for his wealth in and of itself, but rather his attitude towards his wealth. That's the problem. That's the problem. Um, and his attitude towards his wealth actually really more deeply reflects his attitude towards God himself. Uh, keep your thumb here in Luke 12. Go with me to Matthew 19. Matthew chapter 19 was another occasion. Jesus taught on this so often, this matter of, of riches and material wealth, and, and it would seem that we need to really pay attention just to that fact. Um, Matthew 19, um, verses 23 and 24. It's in the midst of a larger context. I'm not, you know, doing harm to the context by just reading this part. It fits right in with what I'm saying. Verses 23 and 24, Matthew 19. Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Wow. Now, transpose that over to the story here in Luke 12 and ask yourself, what's going on with this guy in this parable that makes that eye of the needle so small such that he can't go through it? What's happening there? How has it become so constricted? There's two things going on. You can see it in how Jesus describes it. The first is he is completely absorbed with himself. Verses 18 and 19. I'm going to read it again, and this time with a little bit of emphasis, and I, you'll, you'll get it. You, you'll get it when I reread it this way. 
And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. I'm sure you picked up on that. Um, here's the thing. In the original Greek, it comes out even more strongly. Uh, and, and there are 54 words in this parable. 18 are either I, me, my, myself, or commands the man gives to himself. See what's going on here? He is talking to himself about himself. He is completely self-absorbed and self-centered. And he is oblivious to God. Verse 20. God said to him, Fool. Now, in biblical terminology, a fool is not a stupid person. He's not an ignorant person. It, it, the man is clever. He, he, he knows what to do with the land. He knows how to make these things. He's an intelligent guy. A fool in biblical terminology is a person who lives as who fails to live in the reality of God. Who lives in such a way, almost, whether maybe an atheist, but probably not in this context, probably more like this. If, even if there is a God, okay, even if there is a God, he's not involved, he's not engaged, he doesn't pay attention, he's out there, I'm here, I'm good. Jesus says, fool. And the Lord is saying through the story to us, it is foolish to focus on being rich towards the things of this world. It's absolutely foolish. Again, wealth has its place. God provides it. He has in mind. For you, for me, the different you know, allocations that each one of us have, he has his purposes, he has his intentions, he's got, you know, okay, specific designs on all of that. And, and by the way, we have to acknowledge that, you know, material things do provide a little lift from time to time, don't they, right? I mean, there are some kinds of coffee that are just frankly better than others. A newer car, right, is yeah, it's nicer to drive than the, the heap. Um, that's true. They have their place. They need to mind their place. They have their place, they need to mind it. Because the problem is, you get yourself wrapped up in the premium coffee and the luxury car, and it leaves you wanting more. More of the coffee, more of the car, and more of more things like that. Your appetite has now been whetted. I want more. I want more. It's never enough. It's, it becomes insatiable. And so I, I think we have to sometimes stop and ask ourselves, how much is enough? This guy needed to. So do we. How much is enough? And usually the answer goes like this, a little more. Right? I mean, we, we, we oftentimes get caught in, in this, this system of, or, or cycle of, of thinking if I only could get that promotion, if I could only get that raise, if I could only get that pay increase, then, now you fill in the blank. Let me give you some possibilities. If I could only have you know, all of that, then I could have a bigger house. Then my family could spread out. Then we wouldn't be on top of each other. Then the kids wouldn't fight so much. And then, boy, wouldn't that be great? If only I had a little bit more. And then my wife and I, we could go on more trips. right? And we could go to Nice places, and we could get our lives back together. Maybe we could get our marriage back together, if only. If only. Or maybe it's 
you know, maybe you're in electronics. You know, maybe it's the newer thing. If only that, then, then that. Or maybe, you know, if only I had that, then I could get the education I want. You know, okay, now see, there's nothing wrong with any of those things I just listed. House, electronics, trip. What was the other one? Education. Nothing wrong with any of those things in and of themselves. The problem is what? We've put our hope in a thing. We've put our hope. That's the deliverer now. That's the Savior now. That's the God now. That's what we're serving now. That's what we're bending the knee towards now. We need to hear Jesus' words, lest our possessions begin to possess us. It's an old saying. It goes something like this. If there's something you can't live without, you don't own it. It owns you. Or, if you don't like that, here's a little story. The story of the little fly. The little fly buzzing around. Just poor little fly. Just wanted something to call his own. Is that so wrong? Little fly lands on some paper. Ah! My paper! To which the fly paper said, My fly. Verse 15. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Okay, so there's another part to this, there's another side to this, because Jesus is not just saying, don't be rich towards the world, but he's also saying, be rich towards God. And with that, we have to consider the things that are uncertain. Now this, this man in the story in this parable, you can see what's going on. You can, we can identify with what's going on. He's seeking his security in his ability to control his circumstances, right? Wouldn't that feel good? If, they, if things just didn't feel like they were spinning out of your control, right? So he's trying to find his security and his control over his circumstances. He's figuring if he can just build more and bigger barns, that will secure his future. Great! The problem is, the feeling of security and control that kind of thing gives us is just that. It's a feeling as fleeting. How much mist do you see out there in the field? Remember the, the fog you saw coming in? How much do you see now? It's burned off. It's as, that, that feeling of security and control is fleeting as a mist. That's all it is, is a feeling. There's nothing more substantive to it than that. The, the fact is, though, there is certainty spoken of here in the text. Did you pick up on it? Verses 20 and 21, here's the certainty. Not in our stuff, not in the control that we craft of our circumstances. Here's the certainty, verses 20 and 21. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. The certainty is the inevitability of our time. It's going to come a day when time's up. Game over. And you're out of time. And an account will have to be given for your life. What? 
See why I said this is counterintuitive, counterculture, counter... Are you feeling an allergic reaction? Do you need some spiritual Benadryl now? Um, I thought it was my life. I thought it was my this and my... And Jesus uses language here in, uh, in verses 20 and 21. Well, you know, it's like this night. This night your soul is required of you. That's actually language from the ancient world in the financial realm, used in the recalling of a loan. Time's up. Pay up. Render an account. In essence, the Lord is saying, man, by the way, the guy doesn't get named, which is worth noting. Very few of Jesus' stories actually do we get a name which can mean one of two things. Either the name doesn't matter, and this is kind of a story for every man, or it could also, depending on what's going on, and possibly certainly in this case, he's become less than human. He has no name. But anyway, sidebar. Man, you thought it was yours, your days, your stuff, all of that. You thought your life was your own. It never has been. It's always been alone, and I'm calling it in. I'm calling it in. See, we're but, but stewards. We're not to be rich toward the world, but towards God. A little story. Not true. Bad theology, in fact, with this story. But saying with me. So this angel comes to this man. Um, angel says to him, I will grant you any wish you want. This is bad theology. Won't happen. Okay, but just run with me. I'll give you any wish you want. Man thinks for a minute, and he says, okay, I want all the stock quotes one year from now. Okay. So the angel gives him uh, the newspaper from one year in the future, and there he can see it. And the guy is just elated. He's just so thrilled because now he's, he's just thinking about all that he can do with this, you know, the buys he can make, the trades he can make, the wealth he can accumulate, the stuff he can have, but then... His eyes move to the other side of the paper. He sees his picture in the obituary column. Somehow the stock prices aren't so important now, are they? Because time's up. And an account has to be given. Uh, we are but stewards. Uh, I, know, I know we think of it being our Time, our days. Use an analogy here. C.S. Lewis in his wonderful book, The Screwtape Letters, talks about this very thing. He says about our time. We, we think of our time. We put that in, our, in quotes. Our time. We think of that as not being the time associated with our days on earth in which we are to be faithful. We think of our time as time that we can do with as we please. Possessively. Not our time like associated with us, but our time possessed by us, which is why, by the way, when your schedule gets changed, when you get interrupted by whoever it is in whatever circumstance, it's why you feel robbed. It's why you feel imposed on. Because you feel in that moment it was your time and someone's stealing it from you. Now, transpose that over to money and possessions. It was never yours to begin with. It was never yours to begin with. Um, 
We're to be rich, not towards the world, but towards God. But what does that mean? Maybe we should be more specific as we're getting close to the end of the time. Um, what does it mean to be rich towards God? That sounds very lofty, doesn't it? But what does it mean? Now, sim- simply, we could go to the very end of the parable, and we could say, say, well, it obviously is the opposite of laying up treasure for ourselves. That's true. But if you go deeper into the story and deeper into the whole corpus of Scripture, you can pull a little bit more out than that. And it means something like this. To be rich towards God begins with seeing Him as the Creator of all, as the Savior, and the Sustainer and Provider. It begins there. And then trusting that God, which then frees you from anxious worry and fretting. Okay, We're beginning with some foundational issues principles, building from there, being rich towards God. And then that then allows you to have your mind open to the possibility that the things that you thought were yours and the plans that you had for those things, he might have something else in mind for them and maybe someone else in mind for them. There's a trust, there's an openness, there's a loosening of our grip upon those things so we don't clutch Hold them so tightly, don't need to, don't, don't, don't need to. And looking to see, look, looking and praying for his leading, longing to see returns, if I can use this language, returns on our investment. Investments that probably may well never show on any kind of portfolio statement because they're eternal investments. And they're not going to show up in a QuickBooks report. That's what it means to be rich towards God. Now, back where we started. This warning. This warning that Jesus has given to us to to be on guard, to to watch out. This affluenza thing. Our our lives do not consist in the uh, abundance of our possessions. Um, You know, it it really does hit all of us. Two poles and everywhere in between. Those of us who have less find ourselves just wanting more, we're discontent, we want more, we feel like we've got to have more in order to make things run. But even those who have more want more to fill the hole in the heart. And everyone in between is suffering from the same thing. You know what needs to be said to all of us, wherever on the spectrum we are? What little gods you have. What little gods you have. I'll tell you a story. A story of two armies, not five. That's for December. Hang on for Hobbit trailers. That's what I'm referring to there. Okay, so the, the, the story of two armies, the tale of two armies. One army has taken a town and they're dug in and they're trying to hold it. Okay? Um, the problem is, is that the lines behind them have been cut. They have no idea if or when they're ever going to be resupplied, and therefore they know they've got to be very sparing on their ammunition and their food. And whatever requests they get from other units behind them to to send some of their supplies and whatnot to them, they can't hear those, they can't heed those. The outlook is uncertain. Uh, The conditions are rough, and the mood is grim. You with me? It's one army. Second army has also taken a town. 
has dug in, is trying to hold it. But in their case, they know the lines behind them are wide open. And they have every assurance that supplies are coming in just a few days. So what does that mean? They don't have to be so uh, tight in terms of how they're using the ammunition and how they're going through the food. And when they do get requests from other units around them that need supplies, they can give to some degree because they know they've got all they need and more is coming. Now here's my question. Which army do you think you're a part of? See, the problem is we think we're in the first one. And that's the way we live. Stingy. The reality is, if you're a follower of Christ, you're not in the first army, you're in the second army. And it changes everything. It changes absolutely, positively everything. It gives us a confidence to loosen up with what we have and how we use it and how we give it. Now, why do I say, how does it give you confidence? My friends, open your Bible. Read it. What do you learn there? You learn of a father who loves you so he has given you his son. You learn of the son who loves you so he gave unto you his life and his blood. You read of a father and a son who has loved you so he has given you his spirit that you might know these things, embrace these things, and live out the reality of a generous God who's given all there is to give to you. Do you see how that frees us from the tyranny, the enslavement of clutching and grasping and holding as though this is all there is? Our lives do not consist in the abundance of our possessions. That's a fantasy. No, it's a nightmare. It is so much more. Oh my goodness, not only, building on this point, not only should we be on our guard, we need to be on the lookout for how we can give. Be on, be on our guard against all kinds of covetousness, but also be on the lookout for how can I be generous? How can I live with open hands before this one who's given all to me? Let's pray. Lord, you know us so well. You have, goodness, you've made us, so you do know us. And you came... Oh, Lord, and, and lived among us, and so you've certainly observed us. But you also came as one of us, experiencing all that temptation and what it means to live not with open hands, but a closed fist. You know the temptation of what it looks like to live not for God, but for stuff and for self. You know us, and you love us so well. And so you have spoken, and so you are teaching and so you lived and so you died to set us free from this tyranny. Oh, would you make us what we are, your servants, and what we are, your stewards. And oh, would you help us to remember these things this week, not to just walk out of here this morning with some sort of nice spiritual buzz, but to actually live these things out in practical ways. In this we pray and lay before you, Jesus. Amen. Let me ask our ushers if they would come forward and walk us through now this time.